Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Indra Nooyi is a trailblazer. She was the first woman of color immigrant to lead a Fortune 50 company as CEO of PepsiCo from 2006 to 2018. Today where we live, Nooyi joins us to talk about her new book, My Life in Full. The book focuses on her career and business decisions, but the book also reveals a lot about her upbringing in India, her close relationship with her family, and their emphasis on education. That focus and drive helped her rise into the C-suite, a place that's still outnumbered with male executives. Morningstar finds that in the CEO role alone, men outnumber women 17 to 1. What questions do you have? You can join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Indra Nui joins us on Zoom. Again, she's the former chairman and CEO of PepsiCo. Her book is called My Life in Full, Work, Family, and Our Future. Indra, what a pleasure to have you on the show today. It's a pleasure to be talking with you, Lucy. Thank you for having me on your show. Now, I understand uh, when you stepped down from PepsiCo in 2018 and then a year later as a chairman, uh, you know, ahead of you is retirement. But since that time, you're on the board of Amazon, you're on the Dean's Advisory Council and a member at MIT's School of Engineering. You accepted the role of advisor on economic development uh, to Governor Ned Lamont, uh, who you went to, to Yale Graduate School with. And then when the pandemic hit, you led the reopening committee with Dr. Albert Coe. And there's also this book. So it doesn't really sound like you've retired, Indra. Well, I think it's different sort of a life. I think people like me, once you've been in active uh, service, you can never retire because the brain is functioning nonstop. I think the big difference is that rather than focus on quarterly earnings and be on a treadmill where your life was predictable for two years looking forward, now I can do what really, really, really interests me. I can have a diverse set of uh, interests and experiences. I can contribute in profound ways. And I don't have to worry about uh, being a fiduciary and delivering a quarterly results. So it feels good, feels liberating in a way. Mm. I mentioned uh, your upbringing in India. Um, you also have a, a brother who's a CEO of a healthcare company, a sister, chairperson of Tandon Capital Associates, also a Grammy-nominated artist. And so I'm wondering if you can share with our listeners the influences on you and your siblings that shaped you. Well, you know, in many ways, I think we all won the lottery of life, all three kids, because we were born into a family where the men believed that the women should be educated, should be allowed to dream, allowed to soar, and should not be held back because of the agenda. Uh, and so uh, right from the time we were kids, we were never told, uh, you know, you're going to get married off at age 18, which was the uh, norm in those days. Instead, we were told you know, dream big, soar, get educated, go as far as you want to go and we'll support you. And then my mother with a foot on the brake said, but at the same time, I'm going to get you married at age 18. <laughs> now, the good news is that she didn't win out because she too wanted us to be what she couldn't be. So she lived life vicariously through us. 
So I look back and I say, I'm glad I was born into that family, which was a disciplined family, a conservative family, but a family that treated its girls. The first two children were girls. My brother came much later, treated the two girls as, you know, just another kid, not that you were a girl child, just another kid, you know, go as far as you can go, you want to go. And I think that combination of discipline at home, the support we had from the parents, uh, the fact that they were all highly educated, my father, grandfather were all highly educated, my mother was not given the opportunity, uh, you know, uh, really gave us a support structure at home, at the same time, uh, allowed us to do whatever we wanted within, within the limits. You mentioned your grandfather, you had a very close relationship uh, with him. Tell our listeners about him. Well, my grandfather was a uh, district judge and um, before we were born, he had retired. So he was, um, you know, the uh, patriarch of the family and the matriarch of the family in a sense, because he really ruled the family in a very loving and firm way. Um, he was not a very tall man, a small man, but, uh, you know, had power that exuded out of his face and his eyes. And when he spoke, nobody else did. Um, he was perhaps the single biggest force and uh, uh, tutor and mentor and guide and coach for the two girls in particular because we were the first two uh, kids and then my brother came uh, nine years later. My grandfather cared about our education a lot. He loved us dearly, but he cared about our education. Um, he tutored us in every subject. Even if we thought we got it, he'll give us more advanced problems in math or geography or science just to test the limits of our knowledge. And if we didn't get a very good grade, and a good, not a very good grade would mean, let's say, 90 in geography, he wouldn't say, what happened? Why did you get only 90? He'll say, I probably didn't spend enough time with you on geography. So next time, let me spend a little bit more time with you. He took our education very personally. And um, we wanted to do our best for him. So it was a two-way street. He just adored us and took our education personally. And we, in turn, felt that our grandfather deserved the best from us because he just gave so much of his time to us. Mm. And uh, But for my grandfather and his uh, pushing the entire family to say, these girls ought to do whatever they want to do and dream big and soar, I don't think I'd be here today, Lucy. So I owe him a huge set of, uh, a huge debt of gratitude. And I think about him fondly and emotionally even today. Mm. And you have two daughters uh, today. So when you think about the way that you were raised and how you instilled those in your daughters as well. Well, you know, I always tell everybody that um, I want my daughters to dream, soar, do whatever they want. And if they chose not to engage in paid work and be home taking care of a family, that's okay too. But I want them to have the choice to do what they want to do, not be, you know, limited by society or pushed too much by society. I want them to make their own choices. Uh, they have the privilege of uh, having uh, me as, uh, you know, my husband and me as parents who said, we'll help with childcare. And so I think that, um, you know, I'd love to have been my own kids, <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, I think that we basically told our kids who both have master's degrees that um, they can do literally whatever they want. And you talk about that in your book, uh, that all women should have the choice if they want to work outside the home, that we all benefit 
when women are participating in the paid labor force. And now we're in this moment uh, with the pandemic. Uh, we've seen um, more women leave in the last two years, uh, companies vying to get employees back to retain women in the workplace. Um, so I'm wondering if you can talk about you know, some of the, the initiatives when you were leading uh, PepsiCo uh, to help uh, working families. Well, we have to start with the numbers. If you look at the population today, 70% of high school valedictorians countrywide are women, are girls. Uh, in colleges, women are getting 10 points more college degrees than men. In professional schools, women are getting more degrees than men. And uh, even in STEM disciplines, women are getting the top grades. So I think we have to pause and say, if talent is gonna be the single biggest competitive advantage in an economy that's increasingly moving to a knowledge economy. We cannot afford not to have these incredibly talented women engaged in paid work because that's the way we get the best and the brightest to work and that's the way we grow our GDP. So we have to do everything possible to get them into the paid uh, economy so that we can grow the economy on the one hand. Let me turn to the other side. As the population ages, we have 10,000 people turning 65 every day in our country. This is the boomer generation, my generation. And as they age, they're going to need people to take care of them. And uh, we need children too, because at the end of the day, we need to keep the population growing. So we need women to be the caregivers because women are, you know, are a disproportionate number of the caregivers, whether it's for children or seniors. And we need the same women to have families too. So I think that we are in a very, very difficult position right now where we need all the women we can muster to engage in paid work, whether it's caregiving, you know, nursing, uh, childcare, senior care, and uh, the best and brightest to work in the knowledge economy. And if we don't look at this as perhaps the single biggest opportunity and issue that we are facing today and going forward, we will face a skills gap and, an, uh, and a job gap, the kind of which we've never seen. There'll be jobs unfilled in the care economy, and we will have a skilled gap, a skilled people gap in uh, the knowledge economy. So I'm sitting here worrying about why there isn't a bigger sense of urgency in everybody who can do something about it on this issue. In your book, you write that you know, our social and economic infrastructure does not support the idea that all women should have the choice to work outside the home. We've done several shows during the pandemic here in Connecticut about how our child care system is broken. And so what can be the fix? Well, you know, uh, we have to first start by saying having good child care is not a political issue. It's a human issue because the benefits or the returns to the economy from having good childcare is so much more than the cost of putting the childcare in because you actually allow people who are highly talented and who are, who really are great caregivers to engage in the paid economy. So I think we've got to start off saying, let's think like economists. This is a major growth opportunity for the state or the country. So an investment in childcare is an investment in GDP growth as an investment in the future of families, because when women drop out of the workforce, uh, their earnings potential goes down and they're less wealthy as they retire. And so that compounds societal problems as they go along. So I come back and say that the sooner we move it out of the political arena to a human issue, 
and bring companies, you know, communities, the state government, the federal government together to say, let's address this collectively. That's when we're going to get to a solution for this issue of childcare. You're hearing Indra Nuyi here on Where We Live, former chairman and CEO of PepsiCo. She's a longtime Connecticut resident. We're talking about her new book, My Life in Full, Work, Family, and Our Future. You can join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, we talked about uh, your family and how important they are to you. And you also talk about early in your career uh, when uh, your father uh, became ill, when you um were uh, delivering your first child, even a a horrific car crash, how the companies that you worked, um, they were able to help you with paid leave. Can you talk about that? The first experience I had with paid leave was when I was a young consultant at the Boston Consulting Group. I was in Chicago at that time, and I was just about a year and a half into my consulting career. And there were hardly any women uh, in BCG at that time, maybe a handful. And The word paid leave did not even exist at that time. We didn't think about it. Uh, Then my father is diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. I bring him to Chicago, hoping that there would be some medical treatment. Unfortunately, there wasn't. And he was given less than six months to live. And I knew that I was going to spend my time taking care of him along with my sister, brother, and my mother. And um, uh, what surprised me is when BCG called me, the partner in Chicago called me and said, we in BCG have decided to give you six months time off with pay to take care of your father. And I was, I was just uh, emotional and surprised because I didn't know how I was going to keep my job and take care of my dad. And um, I was struggling with that decision on how, am I, how are we going to manage the family because my husband was in business school at that time. But when um, BCG made this generous offer, um, it was overwhelming and... I took the offer. Uh, My father passed away in three months, and three months and two days I was back at work. So I didn't abuse the paid leave that I was given. Uh, Subsequently, when I had my first child, my second child, when I was in a car crash, uh, whether it was BCG or ABB or Motorola, they gave me the time off to, um, you know, the three months maternity leave. They gave me time off to recover from the accident. I am a product of paid leave. And every time I was given paid leave, it made me more um, attached to the company I was working with. And more importantly, it allowed me to redouble my efforts for the company because I was so grateful to them for providing me the paid leave. In retrospect, uh, I think paid leave is again another human issue. You know, we want children. Uh, and whether it's the parent, the mother having the child or the father helping with, uh, with child rearing in the early days, I think it's incumbent on us to give families, young family builders, some paid leave so that they can just recover from the the trouble and the uh, pain of having the child and spend the first few weeks and months bonding with the child. I think these are critical issues. Mm. And in the pandemic, uh, so many people who died from COVID but are also dealing with long haul um, impact of this virus, uh, giving employees the ability uh, to care for their family members during this time. I think uh, these are, again, human issues. The challenge companies have, and now I'm putting on my CEO hat, (laughs) is when people have to take a long time off, let's say six months up to a year, um, you know, who's going to pay for that? And how do we get the jobs that those people were doing either backfilled or distributed? If you distribute the job, 
to other people. You're just adding burdens to other people in the workroom. If you fill it, when the employee comes back, we're going to have to find another job. So these issues on long-term paid leave are not easy to solve. But, you know, when you have a finite time, like three months or four months of paid leave, you can solve it. You can solve it with short-term measures. So I think, again, I don't believe there's a problem that we have that cannot be solved with intelligent minds coming together if we decide it's a problem we want to solve. Mm. So I think on this paid leave issue, both the short-term and then the long-term paid leave, we have to sit down and think about how do we execute it? What do we do with the job? And who's going to pay for it? How have you advocated for pay parity, not just for yourself, but for other women that you've mentored? Well, I have two daughters, so I'm <laughs> constantly asking them, I hope you, you're sure that you get paid as much as the men do in your companies. And so um, I am all for pay parity. And um, there should be no disparity between anybody who's doing the same job. So this is not even a, um, it's not a, um, company issue, it's a character issue, it's a conscience issue. So I think we just have to say, look, if two people are doing the same job, they should get paid the same. Um, when we were in PepsiCo, uh, and I mentioned this in the book, I did uh, go through a significant pay parity analysis. And the analysis came back saying, you know, the women were paid within 2% of the men. And I said, look, I want it adjusted to be exactly at parity to the men. I don't want the 2% gap. And they said, Indra, it's just 2%. Come on, let's live with it. I said, then pay the women 102% of what the men are making. Mm-hmm. Pay, two, pay them 2% more. Is that okay? Um, so I think sometimes, you know, we say, you know, plus or minus 2% is within the error uh, band. So why not live with it? My point is, if you start there, it's a slippery slope. So when you do the analysis, and you should do it regularly every uh, six months or a year, I think it's important we say, Let's not make allowances and create wiggle rooms because the more wiggle room you create, the bigger the problem. Having said that, let me also say one thing, Lucy. Sometimes you need bands because people's tenure makes a difference or you know, the nature of the job that somebody is doing may be slightly different, except that let's not use all of them as excuses to pay women less. At the same time, uh, thinking about your rise in the corporate world again, often you were uh, one of the few, if only, uh, women of color in the C-suite. And at times, do you wish that you had asked for for more in compensation or benefits compared to your your male colleagues? I think early in my time in PepsiCo, uh, when we were doing all the transformation until about 2000, uh, I saw a lot of the men getting generous stock options special grants. And I wasn't given any of that. In retrospect, uh, if I'd had the courage, I'd have gone and asked for it. Although, you know, I always scratch my head and go, isn't that what the human resources department exists for? To make sure that people are treated equally, fairly? I don't know. Uh, But I never asked for it then because I just didn't know how to. Um, And uh, I always waited for the company to recognize my talents. But in 2000, when I became CFO and then president, uh, the new CEO, Steve Reinemond, just looked at my pay and everything and said, God, you need an adjustment. And he made a massive adjustment. And after that, my pay has been in the public domain. So it was always, there was a check and balance on my pay versus the others. Mm. And uh, I've never had a need to go ask for more because the company always treated me very, very fairly. In your book, I wanted to quote uh, something that you wrote 
women's voices are too high or too low, or they are seen as too short or too tall or too fat or too thin to be great leaders. And these judgments wear us down. And I'm wondering if you can share with us when how people perceived you from the time that you showed up in Connecticut School of, of Yale School of Management to the corporate boardroom, how people perceived you. And, and at times, did that wear you down, Indra? You know, in my case, the problem was slightly different because it's how I thought people were perceiving me, even though they didn't act that way. I walked into a boardroom or a uh, room where decisions were being made, and I assumed people were thinking to themselves, uh, what is this immigrant woman of color doing in this room? What is she going to be able to contribute? It was my own problem, I tell you that, because people were mostly welcoming, and in most cases, they uh, treated me as an equal partner. But for some reason, I felt that they had this big question mark over them which said, what is this woman doing here? So what I ended up doing was over-preparing for every meeting, reading everything that was given to me. And I always walked into meetings being the best informed of everybody in the room. It was an enormous time constraint, I'll be honest with you. But I felt that's what I needed to do to earn a seat in those rooms of power. And uh, over time, I overcame my differences through the contributions I, were making in I was making in terms of content. And I think that practice carried through forever. Uh, later on in life, as I got into positions of power myself, I started to hire diverse teams. And all that I did was I said, I want the best and the brightest, and I'm not going to hold anybody back or not hire somebody because of what they look like or their gender or their ethnicity. So, um, you know, all the way from ABB to um, PepsiCo, when I had many people reporting to me, my teams were always incredibly diverse because I thought the best decision decisions were made when you had diverse voices around the table. You're hearing Indra Nooyi here on Where We Live, the former chairman and CEO of PepsiCo, a longtime Connecticut resident, as we talk about her new book, My Life in Full, Work, Family, and Our Future. We'll continue talking with Indra Nooyi after the break. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest today is Indra Nooyi, former chairman and CEO of PepsiCo. She's been a Connecticut resident for a number of years. We're talking about her new book, My Life in Full, Work, Family, and Our Future. Indra, I'm wondering if you can read the first page of your introduction for our listeners. Most certainly. Um, and this is how it goes. One foggy Tuesday in November of 2009, after hours of meetings in Washington, D.C., with two dozen top U.S. and Indian business executives, I found myself standing between the President of the United States and the Prime Minister of India. Barack Obama and Manmohan Singh had entered the room for an update on our group's progress, and President Obama began introducing the American team to his Indian counterpart. When he got to me, Indra Nui, CEO of PepsiCo, Prime Minister Singh exclaimed, Oh, but she's one of us. And the president, with a big smile and without missing a beat, responded, Ah, but she's one of us too. It's a moment I never forget. 
spontaneous kindness from the leaders of the two great countries that have given me so much. I'm still the girl who grew up in a closed family in Madras in the south of India, and I'm deeply connected to the lessons and culture of my youth. I'm also the woman who arrived in the US at age 23 to study and work, and somehow rose to lead an iconic company, a journey that I believe is possible only in America. I belong in both worlds. Mm. What a moment. Uh, do you think back to all those times or your standing with uh, other <clears throat> people in power and, and what your grandfather would think if he saw you there? You know, it's a scary proposition because you have butterflies in your stomach when you're standing between those leaders because these are leaders of powerful nations. Uh, and um, the fact that you've come so far gives you sort of goosebumps, butterflies, all of that. And then you think about the responsibility. Just standing there doesn't mean you know, there's something wonderful about you. You have a responsibility associated with standing there. So you reflect on that responsibility. And then my grandfather's words kept sounding to me. You know, when you take on something, do it well. Make sure that you always deliver. Do the job to the best of your ability. Don't slack off. You know, all those lessons that he drilled into us as kids, you know, keep coming back. And um, I think it's very important when any of us find ourselves in rooms where there's a lot of power, we should understand that we have a responsibility behind our appearance and presence in these rooms. And remember the responsibility, not just the joys of being in those rooms. Mm. I was thinking about all of the people that are inspired by you, especially women and girls. Did you have any female, female mentors as you uh, took on the corporate world, Indra? You know, not in my early days. I think um, after I became president of the company, uh, there are people who uh, I came across who became my mentors. For example, I write about Secretary Clinton when she was senator in New York. She came to visit us in PepsiCo. And uh, they had just announced that I was going to take over as CEO in August or in October, rather. And um, she, um, you know, reached out and she said, look, anything I can do to help you as you become CEO and move forward, count on me. I'm there. I've you know, been a leader. I've had to deal with difficult issues. You can use me as a sounding board. I thought that was an incredibly generous gesture because, you know, for Secretary Clinton, former first lady, somebody who's incredibly busy, you know, that time was senator from New York, to offer such a helping hand to a CEO who's just about to emerge into the uh, C-suite, I just thought was a generous gesture. And uh, I've taken her up on it now and then. Uh, beyond uh, Secretary Clinton, there have been other people that I've come across. You know, for example, Condoleezza Rice, who I've gotten to know quite a bit over the years, has been a great mentor. President Clinton has been a great mentor too. And uh, over time, we've had small groups of CEOs that have come together as you know, a group of five or six and just chatted about issues without talking about specifics about our company because we had to worry about confidentiality. But really, women have been more in the political arena who've reached out and helped. Mm. In your book, My Life in Full, you also talk about uh, your mother uh, quite a bit, uh, including the fears she had when you were going to leave uh, India to head to Connecticut to go to graduate school at Yale. And then as you rose in your career, thinking about the perceptions of women, what their role should be in the household. So how did you see your mother's views changing throughout your career, Indra? Well, 
I think she was conflicted in so many ways. Here she was a product of a society where the young girls were married at age 18. Uh, many of them didn't go to college uh, and uh, they kept home uh, to care of the kids and to care of the in-laws and perhaps their parents. And that's the role she had seen all her life. And all of a sudden she gets married into my father, comes into this new house and um, she has two daughters, one after the other. And perhaps she's thinking to herself, I want these kids to go to college because I've always wanted to go to college and never had the opportunity. She was a brilliant student. She never had the opportunity to go to college because her parents couldn't afford to send her to college. And so she lived life vicariously through us, but, but constantly conflicted because she wondered what society would say to her. You know, say to her, you know, how could you let your daughters go off into a co-ed college or a co-ed business school? How, would you, how could you let them cross the ocean and go alone without getting, married, getting them married off? So she had all of those questions asked of her. Will your daughters ever get married now? Could you get an arranged marriage for them given that they've gone away from home? So she struggled with all that. But at the same time, she said, look, you're all people. You have to stand on your own. I don't want to hold you back because of your gender. I think she was very generous. But all the time when she lived with us because my father passed away, she lived with the children, she still does. Um, she would tell us to do whatever we wanted. I'll help you with the kids. I'll help you with child rearing. And then she'll say, don't forget, your first role is to be a mother and a wife and a daughter and a daughter-in-law. So there was always this accelerator and break that we saw in action, almost on a daily basis. But then, you know, you accept it as this is mom. Uh, you know, you listen to the accelerator, you listen to the break, and then you do what's right for you. You were very candid sharing uh, this one anecdote, I believe, after you were appointed president uh, at PepsiCo, uh, how you came home uh, late after a long day at work. You wanted to share the news with the family. And what was your mother's response? Well, you know, she, at that point, at 10 o'clock in the night, needed milk for the house. So she dispatched me to get the milk and didn't want to hear the big news. And when I came back and I told her, listen, I have big news. I've been appointed president. I'm going to be on the board of directors. I'm, I'm overwhelmed. And all that you want is for me to go get the milk. And she looked at me and she said, I don't know what being on a board means. I don't know what being president means. I'm sure these are all big things, but the house needs milk. And so please just leave your crown in the garage because when you enter the house, you're the mother, the wife, the daughter, the daughter-in-law. You know, I'll be honest with you, Lucy, at that moment, I was a little upset because I thought she should have given me time to uh, share my news and perhaps, you know, compliment me, make me feel good about it. On the other hand, she's right. When I enter the house, I have a very different job to do. I do and my husband does too. Both of us have different jobs. We are responsible for this family. We are responsible for our children. We're responsible for each other. And so she gave me a lesson in humility, uh, recognizing that, I have power, but leave the power in the garage. So I've accepted that crown in the garage comment now, and I've been practicing it. So has my husband, but at that time it hurt. Again, you're hearing Indra Nooyi here on Where We Live, former chairman and CEO of PepsiCo, as we talk about her new book, My Life in Full, Work, Family, and Our Future. Uh, you were also very honest about the demands of your career on your time with family, especially when you were leading PepsiCo. I wanted you to 
tell our listeners about the one note from your daughter, uh, Tara, that you still keep in your desk, Indra? Well, you know, uh, I'll be honest with you. Being a CEO is about four full-time jobs rolled into one. Being a mother is a full-time job and more. Being a wife is a job. Being a daughter, daughter-in-law, all these are full-time jobs. And I was doing it when there wasn't this kind of technology. There was no smartphone that had matured, no FaceTime, texting. And these remote technologies like Zoom and Teams didn't really exist. So I had to travel a lot. And uh, my little one, Tara, left me a note once which said, Dear mom, please come home. Please, 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 please come home. I love you more if you came home. Um, now, I looked at that note and I wept. Uh, on the other hand, I will tell you that I was a very present parent when I was here. And, um, uh, you know, my children were never latchkey kids. Uh, you know, one of us, my husband and I were at home and we always had a family member or uh, and or a um, nanny at home. So as much as possible, we tried to give them a life that was protective and uh, they felt nurtured and protected. But, you know, there are times they miss mom miss mom a lot. And um, I recognize that. Uh, and I wish I had all these technologies so I could have kept talking to them on Zoom or FaceTime and texting them constantly. So um, if I had one wish, it's that um, the whole technology could have existed when I was CEO or I'm CEO now, so I could be a better mom at the same time. Mm. You write in your book, for many years, the guilt of not being a full-time mother in their early years gnawed at me. I think of these days with great sadness. That really struck me because as a working mother, we all deal with mom guilt, right? When uh, you have to work and sometimes, when, especially during the pandemic, you know, your children are coming to you and, and wanting you to spend time with them and you've got to get the work done. And so I'm wondering how you reconciled that in your career. I think your mom guilt and then you have guilt that you didn't work and contribute to the family. And, you know, to be honest, Lucy, families are fragile uh, and you never know when you're going to be called on to be the sole provider for the family. And if you don't have the ability to keep a job, I think you're putting yourself in harm's way. So I really believe that women having economic freedom in the power of the purse is very, very important. There's no question. I look at photographs of my kids as babies and I look at the chubby cheeks and I say hey God I'd love to you know hug them some more today but those days are gone but you know it's okay to look at this fondly but I also look at the fact that my husband and I were immigrants who had nothing when we got married we built everything up from the ground up and um, I think of my own mother and father my father could have uh, uh, you know, not recovered from that ter terrible accident he'd been in. And had he not recovered, what could have happened of our family? So I look at families and say they're great, they're great support mechanisms, but they're fragile. Think of the number of single parents we have. And so I think it's important that women have a job. And I know all the trade-offs that it entails. Use of flexible hours that are now becoming quite common post-pandemic. Use that to your full advantage, whether it's flexible hours or flexible days, for those that can be in jobs that give you flexibility. But please, uh, have economic freedom, have the power of the purse. It's even more important today than it was 
in past times. Uh, Valentina was calling in from Farmington. Valentina, did you want to share uh, with us uh, about your paid leave experience? Um, yes, and I guess in response to what Indra just said, I totally agree. And I tell friends that if you do have to stay home and take care of your kids, at least get the assets in your name. <laughs> um, but as far as paid leave goes, um, it's been a blessing that it became available on January 1st here in Connecticut because I have a child who um, was recently diagnosed with a chronic illness. Um, so I've needed to take a lot of time from work um, and it is only possible <laughs> for me to do that and still kind of um, support my family as a single parent because of the paid leave. Um, and at the same time, in terms of how the workplace is structured, it is so normal um, at most workplaces for everyone to be doing, you know, 120% of what their job is actually supposed to be. That even when you have paid leave, um, stepping away from work, you know, it's difficult because you're leaving coworkers in the, in the lurch. Um, but I guess on top of paid leave, I feel like the way we structure things at work needs to be adjusted as well to allow for people to be able to use that paid leave. And maybe that means having an additional employee. Um, but I feel like that's a better option than having staff that everybody has sick family members and almost no one can take the time to step away and take care of them without leaving the office in a bad position. Thank you, Valentina. Indra, did you want to respond? That's a great set of comments from Valentina. Uh, you know, this is where we need creative solutions. I always look at Kelly Services that did a great job providing administrative assistance on demand when you needed some. And I think we have a unique situation now where <clears throat> we have a lot of retired, newly retired employees. And I think we need to think about creating a cadre of retired employees who can step in to take the job of people who are out on paid leave. But we need some creative solution to temporarily fill those jobs so people who have to step aside to um, care for loved ones, a child, a, see, a parent, whatever, can actually do that and come back into the workforce. So there's got to be a return ramp. Uh, and so, uh, you know, again, it requires a creative solution, provided we can bring the right people together to say, hey, here's a great business opportunity uh, are companies and governments willing to think about this as a way to address paid leave, the gaps in people's jobs? My guest is Indra Nui, former chairman and CEO of PepsiCo, a Connecticut resident and author of My Life in Full, Work, Family, and Our Future. After the break, we'll continue talking and hear more about Indra's thoughts on the changing workplace and a little bit more about her upbringing in India. You can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. Today, my guest is Indra Nui, former chairman and CEO of PepsiCo, a Connecticut resident. And we're talking about her new book, My Life in Full, Work, Family, and Our Future. You know, I was struck, Indra, with some of the stories that you share in your book, uh, you know, you're a, a hardworking immigrant, like so many immigrants who come to this country now, Indian American. And when you and your husband were looking for uh, places to live, there were particular communities in Fairfield County where they weren't very welcoming to you because of you being an immigrant. Can you talk about that? Well, you know, those were tough days. Um, 
And uh, you know, there were many examples where we were excluded. Uh, but I'll be honest with you, Lucy, over time, uh, where I've ended up is that 85% of the people made us feel included. There was a small group that you know, didn't really uh, have familiarity with and were not comfortable having people like us either rent their home or live in their neighborhoods. That's fine. But I come back to the introduction I read. Uh, me, somebody with my background, becoming CEO of an American Fortune 50 company can only happen in the United States, no other country in the world. Uh, being um, you know, a person of color, an immigrant from, a woman immigrant from an emerging market, becoming CEO of an iconic company. I am a unique American story. And I've chosen to define my life and my experiences based on the 85% of people that supported me, welcomed me, mentored me, pushed me along, and hope that the 15% have changed over time. You also wrote about how one of your daughters was bullied at a public school in Greenwich because of the fact of her background and how you and your husband you know, were shocked and upset. And you know, I'm wondering if you can talk more about you know, why you wanted to share that story, why it's important for people to hear when this happens. Um, it was sort of something that we'd never experienced before. Some of it had happened to us. It didn't bother us. When it happened to our daughter, it uh, crushed us because watching the whole thing being acted out by that psychologist, just uh, something in us snapped. I've never seen the two of us emotionally break down the way we did at that particular night in the psychologist's office. Uh, and I think that... Um, the fact that our daughter didn't share it with us also bothered us because she just assumed that that's how school environments are and she had to live with it. Uh, and so I think uh, I wanted to share it with everybody, even though it was painful, because um, people should understand that you should go visit the school more often to see how your child is being treated. If you see any anomalous behavior, you see my daughter wasn't doing turning in her homework, that was an anomalous behavior and we should have uh, notice that earlier. Uh, and second is that when things like this happen, if the environment doesn't change, take your kid out of the environment because it could have a lasting negative impact. Mm. That was a painful, painful incident in our life. Mm. And it was important that you shared that, of course. Uh, you know, we think about how you were able to to pull your daughter out of that particular school and you found a more welcoming environment where both she and her younger sister flourished. I mean, the Convent of the Sacred Heart in Greenwich is perhaps one of the finest schools that I've ever come across. And the nuns there, Sister Joan McNary, was principal at that time. Uh, you know, the way she welcomed us as a family, and we've stayed connected with Sacred Heart ever since. Uh, it's just the most beautiful school that I've ever seen in my life. I wanted to talk more about your time at PepsiCo. Before we run out of time, uh, and now, of course, you're also on the board of Amazon. I'm wondering, you know, from your perspective, are investors interested in, in workplace gender diversity? I think so. But the good news is now the discussion has shifted from just a pure diversity discussion is to we need the best and the brightest. And the best and the brightest means drawing from the entire talent pool. And when you start with that sort of a business case for diversity, you'll end up with a more diverse workforce because, as I said earlier, whether it's women or diverse people, 
they're actually getting a lot of the grades and graduating in large numbers from colleges and professional schools. So I think for the first time, we're actually seeing um, uh, business leaders say, let's focus on the best talent. Let's focus on making sure that our employee base reflects the consumer base out there, especially for consumer companies. And let's make sure we're not caught at the wrong end of this great resignation. And so this supply demand imbalance coupled with a new realization on talent is causing people to think of diversity as an imperative, uh, as a business imperative, not a nice to do uh, activity. And the role of, of a corporate world and, and sustainability and the idea of, of adopting more planet-friendly policies, which may lower profits. Um, you know, you, when you came on to PepsiCo, encouraged even um, decisions about uh, creating healthier options for consumers. At first, that wasn't uh, really embraced, but you were able uh, to, to make a change as leader of PepsiCo. You've got to look at all of these sustainability uh, initiatives, not as a uh, just a social good that you're doing that doesn't have any shareholder value creation associated with it. But you've got to look at it by saying, hey, if I did these things, I'm actually de-risking the company and future proofing it. And that's going to create shareholder value. I think every one of these ESG metrics, sustainability metrics, has to be framed in the context of de-risking the company. And if you don't de-risk it, there's going to be downstream costs. For example, had we not reduced water usage in our plants, we could have been shut down in many communities which are water distressed. We could have been denied a license to operate in communities. So I just come back and I say, don't look at these metrics and roll your eyes and say, oh my God, there's not the ESG police after us again. And oh, this is a way to ensure that companies don't pass on their costs to society. Mm because somebody's going to have to pay for it downstream. We just have a couple of minutes left. I loved reading how you became a Yankees fan, uh, Indra. You were also, uh, cricket is your first love. You were appointed the first female independent director of the International Cricket Council. Uh, so I'm wondering, uh, in the, the few minutes we have left, if you can talk more uh, about you know that role and you know the, your belief in you know the, why it's important to even be part of, of a team, what it teaches children. A team sports in particular teaches you to give and take, teaches you to have leadership that sort of is decentralized because sometimes different people, you know, direct the play in a particular team sport. So to me, any team sport develops skills that you don't get in real life. So I strongly encourage people to be part of a team sport. You know, individual sports teach you discipline, teaches you to push yourself to the best, the highest limits that you can push yourself to. So it has a role in society too, but team sports to me are particularly uh, phenomenal. And I watched the Chicago Bulls when I was in Chicago, when Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen were playing. And I watched the great Michael Jordan uh, pass the ball to people to make the clutch shot when he could have made it himself and gotten the glory. It was interesting to watch the dynamics in that team. Um, I watched uh, the Yankees play. I watched Derek Jeter lead the Yankees as a captain. And, uh, you know, how he was, how supportive he was of the team, even during the dark days. And um, the humble role that he played as a leader, uh, intellectual humility, personal humility, just abounded from Derek Jeter. So to me, 
these team sports are a wonderful way to not just watch a game and be entertained, but to really learn about team dynamics, distributed leadership, humility, getting the best out of your people, uh, and how to motivate them to do much more than they ever thought they could do. So to me, um, team sports is something I adore for so many reasons. Mm. Well, it's been such a pleasure to talk with you. I'm sorry that the hour has is concluded. I'd love to speak with you more. Indra Nui, former chairman and CEO of PepsiCo, author of My Life in Full, Work, Family, and Our Future. A really interesting read. Thank you, Indra, for your time today on the show. Thank you very much. Appreciate it, Lucy. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Sujata Srinivasan. Our technical director is Kat Pastor. Mm-hmm.